Welcome to the second season of The Bulb. If you've joined us on The Bulb before, welcome back. If you're a new listener, we're pleased to have you. Season 1 listeners will remember the diversity of our first audio outings. We journeyed back in time to learn more about the history of Queensland's service landscape and explored the personal history of one of our state's notable figures in responding to gendered violence. We were inspired by contemporary leadership in the sector and heard the warm conversation of our First Nations colleagues who shared their practice wisdom. 2020 will be remembered by our world as the year of COVID and how we communicate with men who use violence when face-to-face engagement is not possible was a topic we could not ignore. If you missed season one, don't worry, you can still access these fascinating podcasts. For those who have yet to subscribe, we suggest you do so by tapping that subscribe button. Then you'll get notified of each new release of the Bulb podcast as season two and beyond unfold. In this second season, you can expect more variety. And don't be surprised if you hear new accents as an international research colleague or two join us. Oh, and be prepared for some familiar voices too, as we hear from our friends in practice and academia. Hello, Season 2. Hello, Vicky Lowick, and welcome to The Bulb. Thanks for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Colleen, for this opportunity. Vicky, we've known each other a while now, and I'm really mindful that you're currently a PhD um, candidate, and you have spent the last few years working very hard on your research. Could you tell us what you wanted to discover through this research? Yes, Colleen. During the, uh, the last 10 years, we have moved from regional Queensland to um, a more um, highly dense population where we've also moved into a different type of um, Christian environment. I noticed that there were um, a number of large conservative Christian churches in our area. And for convenience, um, traveling wise, we started attending one. And I noticed a, a big difference to something, to teachings that I was used to. And this was that they concentrated on the doctrine of male headship. Now, the doctrine of male headship promotes male leadership and female submission in marriage. And though it doesn't make reference to male leadership in the broader faith community, male leadership is obviously assumed in this context. Otherwise, it, was, it would undermine male control in the home. And the potential for the principles associated with this doctrine to oppress women has been explored through existing research. But I found that I was interested to see how it affected the lives of women more broadly within the faith context, because I noticed women were not in leadership. And it appeared that women's voices and their concerns were being silenced. And I was privy to uh, one woman asking for advice from a church leader due to her abusive home environment and she was told that that was where God had found her and so that's where she should remain. And so that, at, 
that point, I started having a lot of questions um, going through my mind about the safety of women in these contexts. And that began my journey um, into this research. So it started from a very personal place. And obviously, as you embarked on becoming a researcher, you had lots more learning to do, I imagine. So how did you actually go about doing the research and finding out the, the information you needed to find out to complete your PhD? Mm, okay. Well, I undertook a case study methodology because this enabled me to do in-depth interviews with a woman who had been in a long-term domestic violence relationship and it enabled me to get a really clear understanding, a, a retrospective, longitudinal understanding of her experiences. Um, and understanding that isn't often um, gained through shorter interviews. And then I triangulated that with a, an analysis of a sermon that was provided to a community which was similar to the communities my case study participant attended during the 27 years of her marriage. And this is where concerns were highlighted. So it really was a very profound exploration into the life of one particular woman. And for the purposes of your research, and I've read your research, it's very interesting, you named her Jessica. How would you describe for our listeners the story of Jessica? Okay, Colleen. Well, Jessica was financially independent and had a successful professional career. And she was on an interstate work placement when she met Jack at church. And since Jessica was working away from family and friends, she didn't know anyone outside of her work environment. She had regularly attended a Catholic church with her mother and sisters before moving interstate, so she decided to try meeting new people at a nearby Catholic church. Unfortunately, the congregation was of an older demographic, and Jessica thought she was unlikely to find the companionship she was seeking from this group. As a result, she started attending an evangelical faith community as they had a significant young adult presence. Having been brought up Catholic, Jessica was new to the community's conservative beliefs and practices. In the September, a couple of months after she started attending this church, Jessica met Jack. He was the same age as her, 25, and he was completing his training to become a minister. In the November of that year, Jessica inquired if anyone in her social group at church wanted to share a drive into state as she was planning to spend Christmas with her parents. Jack volunteered to accompany her on the drive as he had relatives living in a suburb not far, not far from her parents' home. In my experience, Vicky, you can learn a lot about a person on a road trip. What happened on Jessica's drive with Jack? On the drive, Jack kept telling Jessica that the man was the head of the household. And on reflection, Jessica said her desire to foster new friendships may have influenced her acceptance of Jack's philosophy on marriage during that drive. Jack was drawing on that doctrine of male headship to establish and justify male authority in a relationship. Perpetrators often seek a theme of justification to legitimize their abuse of women, and they can draw on patriarchal views that are built into many social contexts. 
Paradoxically, these patriarchal views can also shape a victim's acceptance of restrictions on her life. Jack didn't visit his relatives over Christmas. Rather, he stayed with Jessica's family for the holidays. One week after Christmas, he proposed to Jessica. She now feels that Jack decided to propose because he overheard her speaking to her father about buying a home unit to live in and one for investment. Jessica reflects that she was caught up in the moment when she agreed to marry Jack, as her family thought he was very nice. When Jessica and Jack arrived back after the Christmas break and announced their engagement, the faith leaders asked Jack to move out of the church accommodation. As he only received a small allowance, they obviously expected Jessica to fund his living expenses. They also encouraged her to embrace other restrictions on her life, such as giving up her career in, re in return for the reward of becoming a minister's wife. When Jessica tried to break off the engagement after a couple of months, Jack cried and screamed until she relented. Then he started socially isolating her from her friends. Jack's grooming of Jessica through this, his promotion of the doctrine of male headship now provided him with a submissive partner. They were married for five, they were married for five months and then were, Jack was appointed as a minister to a church in the same city where Jessica's parent, parents lived. During the first six years of their marriage, Jack eroded Jessica's agency, leaving her feeling trapped in an abusive relationship. He had cultivated the systematic use of both non-physical and physical abuse to promote feelings of terror in Jessica. He isolated her from social support and controlled all aspects of their life, including whether he would provide financially for his family, whether they would live in suitable housing, and whether Jessica would be permitted to embrace motherhood without fear of reprisal. One night, Jessica was feeding her newborn baby and Jack ripped the baby off her breast. Jack soon decided to move the family to a regional area so he could take on a new position within the church. He and other faith leaders considered it appropriate to take control of Jessica's now maturing financial investments. The senior minister would also come around at night when Jack wasn't home and Jessica was usually feeding her second baby. He would interrogate her about her sex life because Jack had said she was withholding intimacy. The promotion of male authority throughout this faith community appeared to be underpinned by disparaging attitudes about women, attitudes that supported gendered abuse. By the time Jessica and Jack had been married for 12 years, Jessica was navigating Jack's gaslighting and other physically and emotionally abusive behaviors as well as the unethical and inappropriate behaviours of other men in her church community. However, the children's paediatrician was very observant and he stated to Jessica that Jack's behaviours were unacceptable. Did Jessica seek other help, Vicky? Jessica attempted to seek support from her general practitioner and was referred to a psychiatrist. Unfortunately, Jack made contact with these health professionals and told them Jessica had a mental health problem and needed to be medicated. When Jessica refused to accept medication, stressing the problem was Jack's behaviour, the doctor and psychiatrist considered her to be non-compliant and refused her further treatment. She then asked for a referral to a different psychiatrist. 
The new psychiatrist refused to take Jack's phone calls and concurred with Jessica that his behaviours were abusive. The psychiatrist was supportive of Jessica separating from Jack and he provided her with advice on how to access welfare payments. Jack's capacity to abuse Jessica was curtailed when she separated from him, but the senior minister stepped in. He charged Jessica rent to stay in the manse, which had been the family home for several years. Jessica had to pay rent into Jack's account, though he was being provided with free housing and food. The minister insisted that Jessica not discuss her separation with anyone else in the faith community. She was told to attend church on a Sunday with the children and sit next to Jack. Eventually, the minister told Jessica to resolve her marital issues. The faith leader's actions denied the seriousness of Jessica's situation. He coerced her to re-enter the marriage. Jack was not held accountable for his past abusive behaviours and Jessica was not provided with any protection from ongoing abuse. Research by Tommy and colleagues and colleagues identified this layered contextual influence on victims of domestic violence as a form of social entrapment. The first layer refers to the coercive and controlling behaviours exercised by the perpetrator. The second refers to the indifference of powerful institutions to the victim's sufferings. And the third layer refers to the further facilitation of coercive control by the structural injustices associated with gender, class, race, and disability. After 20 years of marriage, Jessica's narrative was revealing a pattern of abusive behavior, as well as the wider operations of power in her life that prevented her from escaping Jack's abuse. They had moved to another regional area where Jack was the senior minister. Throughout the next six years, the final years of their marriage, despite Jack's escalating abusive behaviours, he was actively engaged as a senior minister in his faith community. Jack employed a range of strategies to abuse Jessica. Vicky, what else did he do to Jessica? Jack enrolled Jessica into a university program during this time, and he did this without consulting her. He was hoping she would retrain re-enter the workforce, and then he could retire from work. He also took control of the Centrelink payments that she qualified for. When Jessica sought academic support during the university's orientation week, she was put in contact with the university's psychologist. We'll call him Jeff. He offered student support. This professional relationship continued over the next six years. He observed the deterioration of Jessica's well-being and identified Jack's behaviours as abusive. He also provided Jessica with skills on how to navigate her circumstances and stay safe. In the last year of their marriage, Jack's behaviours impacted heavily on Jessica's day-to-day -day living. He refused to buy a mattress that fitted their bed base, so she slept on a small caravan mattress. He took control of buying groceries and cooking food, depriving Jessica and their daughters of adequate nutrition. He started hurting the family's small dog. He would also lock Jessica in her office at home and not let her come out until the daughters arrived home. He was also threatening to kill her at this stage. Jessica's experiences align with the experiences of victims of torture. Hayes and Jeffries explain that perpetrators of domestic violence, like perpetrators of torture, action continued attacks abruptly and without warning to instill fear 
and to intimidate their victims for the purpose of exercising control over them and the relationship. This ongoing abuse can result in victims thinking they are losing their minds, with the threat of murder being one of the most effective tools for terrorising a victim. Jessica soon realised the danger she was in. Jeff, the university psychologist, was away on holidays, so she sought protection from the police and assistance from a specialist domestic violence service. However, neither of these avenues provided adequate responses, leaving Jessica at the mercy of Jack's ongoing abuse. Jessica's sense of hopelessness resulted in her deciding that suicide, made to look like an accident, would provide her with relief from her circumstances and her daughters with financial security from her life insurance. Fortunately, university teaching staff detected changes in Jessica. On the day she was planning to take her life, she called into the university to, to submit her final assignment. Her lecturers were alarmed at her presentation. They kept her in their office and made contact with Jeff, the university psychologist who had just returned from leave. Jessica's suicide attempt was prevented and Jeff made inquiries to arrange safe accommodation for her so she could have a break from Jack. Jessica received the appropriate support to leave Jack, but unfortunately she found that he had misappropriated all of their joint finances, leaving her with a large debt burden. So Jessica was able to have time away from her abuser. Did Jack's treatment of Jessica improve? Jack continued to action his abusive behaviours against Jessica in the post-separation period. His coercive control over her was enhanced by the behaviours of members of his faith community who ostracised Jessica and demanded she sell them the home unit she thought Jack had paid cash for. Instead, he had drawn back on the mortgage, creating a large debt. Jack also invited church members to rummage through her belongings. A regional faith leader came alongside Jack's continuing abuse of Jessica and meted out his disregard for her many years of domestic violence, encouraging her to consider Jack's reputation and re-enter the marriage. Well, I would describe that, as you said, Vicky, as years of torture. That is a very mm. harrowing story. And you mentioned that you had a variety of uh, methodological approaches built into your research. After years of exploring the whole phenomenon based on Jessica's story and the other research you described, what were the kind of, um, I guess, I don't want to say take-home messages, but what were your, your key conclusions, maybe your top three conclusions that you would like to share with listeners? Yes, Colleen, well... Most significantly, I think, um, Jessica was a member of four Christian faith communities during her marriage. And though faith leaders were aware of her, her abusive home environment, they did not actively intervene to ensure her safety or the safety of her children. Jessica's lived experience of domestic violence provides important findings about the level of professional support she required to survive and to break the bonds that trapped her in an abusive marriage. The consistent and skilled support provided by the university psychologist was integral to helping Jessica recognise and resist Jack's abusive behaviours. As Jessica's story shows, faith can undermine women's safety when religious doctrines, beliefs and practices construct a gender hierarchy where men are advocated to exercise authority over their wives. Domestic violence is not outwardly condoned by Christian faith leaders 
or their community members. However, patriarchal beliefs and practices can create environments where men feel justified to abuse their wives. Christian faith leaders do not consider this to be an inherent issue. Rather, it is portrayed as a misinterpretation of beliefs. And Jessica's narrative began with a celebration of her independence as a young professional woman and highlighted her cautious strategy for meeting new friends through a Christian faith community. And then she found herself in a relationship in a socio-cultural environment where women's voices and their concerns were silenced, enabling the unbridled use of coercive and controlling behaviours. And Colleen, Jessica survived the journey to regain her autonomy after being in this relationship for 27 years. After leaving Jack, she continued to study at university. She undertook low-paid cleaning jobs, sought food from charities, and used a solar garden light at night to save on electricity costs so she could repay the significant debts incurred by Jack. That was a very powerful story, Vicky, and your works really underscored the complex nature of domestic violence in particular. But if we're thinking about gendered violence more broadly, and we finish on a somewhat hopeful note, I thought, with uh, Jessica's story, what gives Vicky Lowick hope? Yes, Colleen, well, what gives me hope this year is Grace Tain's selection as the 2021 Australian of the Year because it provides hope for all women who have internalised the effects of gendered abuse. She is creating a pathway for survivors to confidently call out abuse and, as she stated, put the shame where it belongs, at the feet of the perpetrators. The combination of Grace Tame's articulation of her sexual violation and the Me Too movement's empowerment of women who have experienced gendered abuse will hopefully bring about wider societal change where institutional structures will be redesigned so they no longer facilitate opportunities for gendered abuse and the silencing of victims. Vicky, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for sharing Jessica's story, which has enabled at least one victim survivor we know to have a voice and to have a very proud voice in your research. Thank you very much, Vicky Lowick. Thank you, Colleen. It was a pleasure. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb Enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1-800-737-732 through 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.